Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles, producer Trent here. Another double guest episode today. Uh, The first guest on the show is a novelist and comedian, Nick Revel. We spoke to Nick in the studio back at the start of March, Robin and Josie, both in attendance. And our second guest is Ian Stone, uh, also a stand-up and author of the new book, To Be Someone, about his... uh, relationship with the jam as in the band not uh, not the spreadable conserve and if you are a patreon supporter you can get extended editions of both of these episodes on the patreon feed patreon.com slash bookshambles uh, is where you can go to subscribe if you haven't already remember also to go to apple Podcasts and spotify wherever you listen to this show and uh rate and review and share and do all that sort of stuff um that really helps us out as well so here we go here is today's episode apologies if there is a little bit of um background noise during this intro from me uh our neighbors are drilling and you know there you go been going all day it's not annoying at all Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. We're now going to be talking uh, about, uh, well, uh, we're going to be talking a little about alternative comedy, comedy generally. Uh, Hello. um, uh, Well, I'll I'll start off by saying, because we we talked to Oliver Double, and you turn up in his book quite a lot about alternative comedy. Oh, really? And on top of that, you were, I think, the first or second compare that I saw at the comedy store. <laughs> so in a very neat grey suit you had then, yeah. quite long hair as well. You had quite Did you know, kind of certainly like, like you know down to the down to the collar. Yeah. Did you have a specific um, look that you always took? I on? always like to keep. I was a bit of a chameleon, you know. I like to keep my fans uh, excited about the next iteration, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and that worked pretty well, um, you know. So that I couldn't, I couldn't nail it down to a specific look, but that would be about nineteen. I think it was eighty-five or eighty. It was. It was oh, by the really? time eighty-five or eighty-six. It was by. Wow. It was just when the comedy store had moved to uh, that nightclub on uh, Leicester Square, which yeah. has gone on to be the ninety-nine. Yeah, club yeah. Or something like that. yeah. 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 And do you? I bet you remember some of what happened that night in terms of lines and events. Oh yeah, <laughs> no, because I, I was. Try, I try and put it in order because the early comics that I saw there were um, Andrew Bailey, aka Freddie Benson, mm-hmm. uh, Kit Hollerback. Uh, I can't. I don't think Jenny Lacote. I don't think I saw her there. I think I saw her at another one. Uh, uh, I saw a Canadian comic uh, who ended up doing a, a play all about Lenny Bruce later on, uh, and used oh, to look no, a little that, bit like Billy Joel. That was Ray Hanna, but he Ray- wasn't Canadian. He's from California. Oh, anyway, yeah. he pretends to be Canadian to win the audience over. I, oh, I, yeah, I but he did it as a joke. Oh, well, I didn't get that. I was a teenager. There's no oh, room for irony. See. This is so, like yeah. when I read American Psycho, and I was like, wow, that guy's done a lot of murders. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there was uh, Julian Clary's Joan Collins fan club. And, at that point, Sorry, in, I think in, we just need to mark how literal you are. This, yeah. The, 
yeah. this comes as a bit of a surprise. Well, frankly. I can't remember what I... Yeah. All, all I remember was he wasn't my favourite act. Um, uh-huh. So that's probably okay. the best thing. Oh, I burned! So, so, I totally also, he was rude to, Right, years later, when uh, when I was in my early 20s and I used to hang around at uh, Joe Brown's flat in Edinburgh, right, because I was working in Venue, right, one day when I fell asleep, uh, he started kind of bullying me and jabbing me and stuff like that and Joe stopped him. So, oh, yeah, okay. Ray Hannah. Um, God bless Joe Brown. What a good person she is. Always a good person. Yes, truly. And yeah. a very talented person, and also a very cool talent in terms of how she has evolved over time. God bless her forever. Um, the uh, so I wanted to just before we get on to talk about some of the other things, which is your early days in mm. terms of as I, as I said, you pop up in Oliver's book a lot in terms of those early comedy clubs and those early working out what was alternative comedy, what what mm. was what, what was this thing. So when you first started doing stand up, what led you to to that? What led me to doing stand-up? Uh, well, I always wanted to do comedy, even when I was at university or even before I was at university. And, of course, the role models then were really Monty Python, that kind of, you know, uh, more out-there sketch comedy, Peter Cook, Daly Moore. And then uh, two things happened fairly close together. Um, well, I found a Lenny Bruce album in the Woolworths in hmm. Pontefract. <laughs> And I'd heard about him through a song in a John Mayles song. He was lyric in a John Mayles song. So I bought that and I was listening to it. Uh, and then uh, a couple of years later, a uh, comedy store opened and also the Richard Pryor, uh, probably, yeah, the Richard Pryor uh, first concert album mm. came out. And I was blown away by that. Um, went to see it twice. And it was extraordinary. It just opened up the possibilities of what, possibilities of what stand-up could be like nothing else I'd seen. I mean, I was familiar with Billy Connolly, who I liked, and Dave Allen, who I loved as well. But that prior film just just took it into so many different dimensions. I thought, I've got to at least try this. And then, um, so I went down to the comedy store, sort of autumn of 1980. Wow, that's early days. Early-ish days, yeah. And sort of... Um, Did you have some idea, had, had things like, you know... Alexi Sale was, was that was, that made it into the press by then and yeah because he it was aware yeah, yeah yeah but um but beyond that no um I mean you, you know he knew it was fairly um, radical stuff if you like and, um, and what was it like to arrive there for the first time Do you uh, remember? it was terrifying because <laughs> apart from anything else you know I wasn't really used to to London that much and it was just the midnight show and you had to queue it was in in, in a little n- nightclub in Meard Street, just off Dean Street, but the entrance is in Meard Street. And you, you had to go up in a lift. And it only took four people at a time, right? So you had all this kind of leery late-night crowd standing in a queue. And to give you an idea what it was like, on a subsequent trip, I was in the toilet, fag in one hand, whiskey in the other, literally crapping myself in the cubicle, and I heard people outside say, what is this place anyway? I don't know, but you can get, drink lager till four in the morning. <laughs> so that was, you know, that was the kind of part, that was the other weird thing. You had this really polarised audience of people who were coming to drink late and because of the gong, which was there all the time, and you had a little kind of core of alternative comedy fans and so on. So that was all polarised. You go up in the lift, four in a lift, you know, uh, uh, really kind of claustrophobic, and so your nerves are going... Zoom, 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 zoom. And then just um, you didn't know what was happening, you didn't know what, what was going on. So, yeah, absolutely terrifying. I got through the first one just about without being gonged, and even though it was... And it was quite a rough night, because, I mean, I know I've told you this before, but, you know, it, I think everybody, just about everybody either got gonged off or... 
uh, heckled off apart from Rick doing Rick Mail doing the poet. I mean, like you know, him and Aid got uh, certainly got a load of flack when they were doing the Dangerous Brothers, um, and uh, Peter Richardson, Nigel Planer, and loads of people just getting just getting taken down, and and Rick Mail just dominated the room with with the poet character really quite late on but the whole uh, tony allen was comparing and he was brilliant and um even though it was horrendously terrifying i thought i've got to try this again but that's it the interesting (laughs) thing is i think what it was you saw how some people could do what they wanted to do and run the room without compromising into you know into sort of broad material which is like the essence of being a comedian, yeah, like the, yeah, the, the heart yeah, of it. yeah, yeah. Because yeah, in all of this book, kind of... he kind of makes the point of that. In now, in the history of it, the comedy store and the comic strip are very much kind of oh, that that was it. But actually, a lot, as far as I can see, of of really the way that it blossomed and grew was in the other clubs as well. Certainly, the TV names, you know, uh, the, the 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 comic strip and and that. But a lot of the other stuff, reading about you know Earth Exchange and mm. Elgin, and then then not yeah. that long after Downstairs at the King's Head, which yes. I think you know Pete Graham yes. placed all those things that and that bit kind of it makes the history slightly more unruly and seeing that tony allen's kind of gang the you know the alternative mm. cabaret gang were, were, were there and then there was yeah. the and they seem to be quite different because i think you know rick and, a, and i do think rick mail is you know still one of the most remarkable live performers when you watch that mm. footage and to arrive with with two brilliant characters so 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 fully formed the yeah, poet yeah. and kevin, and kevin Turvey. Turvey. yeah um mm. yeah but there was all this other you know the the kind of you know the weirdos and the freaks that uh, tony allen well, you know as, as he said well, tony you know, kind of, tony and sorry no no go on even, no so well, tony and and and, and alexi and I, I I can't remember who was in the original alternative cabaret when they were doing it in the Elgin and uh, uh, and they'd come out of street theatre and political street theatre and so on. But I think I think Maggie Steed was involved quite early on and certainly Pauline Melville. Do you know Pauline yeah, Melville? She's a great writer as well as a she plays Aid's mum in, in an episode of The Young Ones. <laughs> but she she's a really good uh, really good writer as well. I haven't seen her for years and she's also in um, uh, a Tessa the Durbeville, one of the Tessa the Durbeville films. Anyway, I'm digressing. Um, so they started prior to the the comedy store, and then it, yeah, it kind of then, then obviously the comic strip lot went fast tracked into into TV for obviously understandable reasons. And then there was this strange circuit. I mean, I, I, I for me, nothing really came close to that terrifying joy of doing the comedy store regularly because it was such a kind of focal point for you never know quite what kind of an audience you were going to get but you knew that there was a kind of solidarity amongst the acts in terms of approach and it was never it was never actively defined what alternative comedy was it was defined by what it wasn't you know so you wrote your own material that's probably the only active sort of regulation apart from that it was no sexism no racism no ageism you know so you wouldn't be punching down that was the essential thing Beyond that, there was no, but there was a solidarity because you kind of set, set you, I mean, it sounds grandiose now, but I think it's looking at it with a bit of distance as well. You weren't, you weren't conscious of it at the time, perhaps, but we were part of a countercultural, you know, we were part of the counterculture, that's for sure. What motivated your material? Do you remember at that early stage? Was it just finding stuff that was funny? There wasn't some kind of grand, or did no, you think, oh, there's... I, I think I was, I mean, even though not all my, material was political i think i was probably 
in retrospect, overcommitted to being political. I mean, I was funny, <laughs> mm. uh, but I, um, I think in retrospect, I, 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 sh I should have sort of just not worried about everything being in some way satirical or political in, in, in my mind, even if it wasn't overtly so. I think it kind of limited me from just messing around and being funny, which I'm trying to rectify now. Really. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I think I was conscious of that. Um, and probably too much, I think, for my own good. Because there's an in interesting bit where, as as the alternative kind of got further and further, you know, I always love there's a great Callan and Ball have Rick Mail on one episode, which is mm -hmm. such an interesting mm -hmm. kind of. And well, actually, I did Tarbuck. I did Bob. Yeah, well, that's yeah. what I was going to say. Oh, when right, you were on yeah. the Tarbuck thing, and I think Hancock and Malarkey did it as well. Yeah, right? same gig. And there was. Sure. Me and Shirley Bassey. <laughs> I had to follow Shirley Bassey oh singing New York, New York. But there was a oh, political God. thing, wasn't there? That huh? reminds me, I remember Sean Lott doing, doing an amnesty gig, and uh, it was overrunning at Wembley. And uh, Tom Jones was on last, Stereophonics. <laughs> they, they said, Sean, we're really sorry, but you're not going to be able to go on. And uh, and then Tom Jones went on and belts out these hits in Wembley Arena. And then they go, Sean, you can go on, actually. <laughs> and he went on. And Sean just walks out. He goes, I'll have him support me again. He's good, isn't he? And it was just like an immediately, yeah. totally taking yeah, on me what had just happened. And accepting it. And, and, it and, and yeah, yeah, that was fantastic. Brilliant. But but you, yeah, when you did, I mean, there mm. was some kind of, in terms of the politics, there was a certain amount of, hang on a minute, what's Why, going oh, on? Oh, the, a the certain amount. There was, there, there was a lot of controversy about me doing that, you know, that I was some kind of, you know, it was a sort of Stalin Trotsky <laughs> situation, you know. With me being the one who had to flee to Mexico, um, essentially my thought was right. Well, all the mainstreams say that we can't do, we're not really funny. All we can do is slag off the government and swear. So I thought when I got offered it, I thought, well, if I go on there, then it, sh you know, it shows it shows the mainstream that we can actually do. Uh, more mainstream stuff if we choose to. So I was conscious of sort of making a statement, but a lot of people got very upset. I think a lot of it was just personal jealousy, to be honest. Hmm. You know, it was at that stage where, you know, somebody gets a TV, there's that, oh, 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 I'm not, you know, he's got one that I haven't got or whatever. Everybody was so insecure about it. I think a lot of it was was that, but it was couched in terms of, you know, selling out the selling out the movement and so it's a good on. thing People were when you off work on stage, out man, saying don't really? come and see me yeah that's but what, what you like do to... now though is incredibly have you seen any of nick's last few no shows? i've seen nothing the, i've just man. been in baby prison <laughs> they are oh he's been doing them for longer than that that's not your alibi i'm sorry uh you're gonna have to come up i was on tour fair enough so um but they are filled with so many ideas. I mean, you are, you know, something of an autodidact and you spend a lot of time, you know, kind of reading and art galleries. And, and you, you know, it's an hour which is you just go the, the compression of ideas, scientific, philosophical, mythic, you know, <laughs> Philip K. Dick and Homer. It's all kind of in there mm. in, in, in one hour. Yeah. So that how much of that creativity comes from from what you read? And, and Oh, a lot of it. And I think I think the other the other place it comes from is now I feel confident enough in what I've done in stand-up or whatever that I don't have to prove anything to myself anymore so I can do what I want to do. You know what I mean? I know I can do corporates, not that I would be offered them or would really want to do them. I know that I can do bear pits and now I just think, right, I'm going to do the stuff that I want to do. And so I love having a narrative there because I think, and again, you know, being less confrontational now, I don't feel the need to be confrontational in the same way that I used to. 
So the idea of a narrative where, as we know, you know, it pulls people in who might not necessarily agree with what they work out your position is as the story goes along, your attitudes to things, but they're going to be more on board if there's a narrative. And I love, I just love stories and trying to get a structured story right and the puzzle of trying to make it work right over an hour or an hour and a half whatever it is and then yeah whatever I'm reading and something catches my interest like I, I was reading um, an article well I saw uh, um, uh, uh, Herzog's um, Lo and Behold the, his, his film about the internet and the history of the internet and the future of artificial intelligence and robotics and blah 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 and out of that I did the one that I know you saw Robin about my, my cat becoming super intelligent <laughs> and nearly taking over the world because it struck me that you know a cat being so charming and delightful but also brutally brutally ferally nasty I thought if they hadn't if you had one with a, uh, an IQ of 150 it would rule the world you know and so that gave me the excuse then to do loads of of research but i sort of found a way of melding if you like all the 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 the, the information the sort of rather you know just uninteresting unexciting information with a with a story with a pulse and the one that i'm doing at the moment is going to be about time travel it's called the tale of the uh, the tale of the time traveling tartan tea towel and it's about me going back to the Jacobite rebellion. So it's given me a lot of chance to read about 18th century politics and so on. And inevitably, it's much more complicated than I expected when I first started doing it. But That's I love how people feel when they go into your shows. About <laughs> 10 minutes in, they go, this inevitably is a little bit more complicated. Because lo what I love is, you know, when you, I think, I think that mistake, which we probably all make, which is sometimes you go to Edinburgh and you start off with an hour long show, which is ah. a disaster. Because <laughs> within three days, you know, I, I think it is one of the most fecund times, isn't it, in terms mm. of just the, the speed in which you can take what seems like almost nothing and yeah. turn it into a show yeah. and then go, how do I fit it in? And you just get faster and faster and faster. I have and faster to, yeah. It's a bit annoying. Yeah. I mean, I'd like, I like going at a lick, but at the same time, I'm having to, I'm even, even with savage cutting, I, I, I have to. I have to go really fast but just what to get a thrill. Yeah. It is exciting. Yeah. 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 It is fun. How do you feel about like, Having written and made stand-up over several decades now, do you feel like your repertoire increases, increases in its richness? Do you feel like you look back at certain stages and that's nothing to do with who you are? Like, uh, Yeah, how do you feel mm. about it, like looking back at your work and how it changes? I think, I think obviously all of it is part of you in one sense, although I totally mm. get what you mean about, you know, you either consciously or for various reasons want to sort of reject some of it. But I think that, I think, a lot of it is is more the way it gets into your muscle memory, the sense of how to stand on a stage and actually relate to the audience. Yeah. Uh, and I, I mean, it's strange, like you know, Robin saying that I was one of the first comics he saw. You know, it's really strange to realise you were in it right at the beginning of something. Of course, you knew what you were at the time. But you didn't really know what it was going to be or anything. Um, so I think it's all. It's all invaluable. As I say, I think probably I feel a bit more... I feel more comfortable being discerning now about the kind of stuff that I do, even if it means... You know, I mean, I still love playing a bear pit, but at the same time, I think the amount of time and energy that I've got to write stuff, I don't want to spend my energy writing a set which works brilliantly to drunks who don't read you know i know i can do it so i don't i'd much rather try and work out a way of conveying the complexities of the post 1688 situation in the british isles but it's connection for you too like i always thought i got to a point where i was like 
if I wouldn't want to be in this crowd, yeah. I don't want to be on this stage. Yeah, that's Partly a good because way of putting it. because this is my life too. Yeah, absolutely. And I like meeting people and I like connecting with yeah. people. And so yeah. if I can find people who do like what I'm interested in, yeah. that's better for me. Absolutely. And selfishly, I'm also a person. Yes, but that is an, it's right. an old but, thing uh, about uh, comedy, isn't it? Which is, it does seem to be the only art form where right from the start you are told you must get ready to perpetually appear in front of people who wish to hate you. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, you, you know, the, the initial aspiration of March, I want to make something that's beautiful and wonderful yeah. or, or intriguing, and it, it may well sometimes rob people. But the idea of going, oh, just say no, you will yet again have, have to mould yeah. your creativity into a shape that yeah. is acceptable for that man who's lots just plummeted. Of, lots of crowd control. Yeah, you put it right, beautifully put what Josie, Josie said there. And, 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 yeah, and I think too late I've come to that. Kind of it's never too late. No, I know, but I w- well, yeah, no, I know. I, I wish I'd come to it uh, um, earlier now, but I, I do feel much more comfortable doing the stuff that I do because I know, as I say, but I had to prove to myself that I could do a, a, a wide range of the required mm-hmm. things. Although I did make Mike Wilmot, who's a very funny Canadian comedian who we both know, yeah. I made him laugh a lot. I was very proud of this. We were, we were talking as we often do when we run into each other, you know, about comedy like this, except without a microphone and uh, the. At one point, in the culmination of one uh, conversation, I said to him, I said, um, here's a good curse to throw at a stand-up comedian. May you be brilliant on cruise ships. <laughs> <laughs> Which is unkind because I admire... I admire the the people who who, who 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 work well in that situation in a lot of ways, but I know that they're constantly dealing with that, you know, that the power of the audience uh, to, to 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 an exponential degree, and I just think it for me it would be a nightmare, you know. Oh, uh, speaking of which, Jess Foster Q and I don't know if there's a recording of it, but wrote an incredible comedy show called The Silence of the Nans about <laughs> um, dying on a cruise ship and then being stuck on a cruise ship for That's like a thing. week. That's why we never <laughs> stuck on the. Who's yeah. the one who was? Uh, there was someone who was airlifted out. Yeah, I forget. Cause Ron I, Vaudry, I think, wasn't it? Uh, oh, maybe it was. I think yeah, it was Ron Vaudry. Because uh, yeah. Jeff Stevenson, who uh, yeah, he's brilliant, and and he he loves it. I mean, he, you he know, you, and you he's read great. his Facebook thing, and he's over the moon. He's, he's off yeah. in another interesting place. He's there in the sunshine. And, and for him, I, that's another it, thing about comedy, isn't it? Working out. The, what you know, your I, I saw area someone the is? other day saying what a real comic is. Uh, like, yeah. And you go, well, there are lots of different things that are real comics. Do you know what I mean? Like a classical violinist is not the same as a, like... I don't know another genre of musician. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's not, not the same as Bauhaus or or Kraftwerk yeah, or something. Exactly, it's yeah. not helpful, is it? And like even down to like ethical decisions, like it just isn't my issue if there are comedians who want to do really really intense corporates I'm like do I really like mm. obviously what I want is to overhaul the system of capitalism yes. but That's... That is, if that is not happening I'm not going to be like you dick you did the awards ceremony for some accountants like why the fuck can't they do that like let them do it who cares it's not my life like you know my stage is my stage yeah yeah the, it's um, liberating when you came back and I had this moment where I bumped into uh, Nick at the uh, um, so pedestrian ho, ho, crossing. It? No, it was pedestrian crossing oh. Oh, uh, on the way to Dorking Halls. <laughs> uh, oh, and yes. I basically kind of said it was like, uh, I like to see it as uh, Clint Eastwood and Lee Van Cleef, uh, <laughs> as long as you only do it on the radio and don't see what we really look like. <laughs> and uh, which like was. Wait a minute. Lee Van Wait a minute. Hang on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank but it, you. But it yeah. was uh, <laughs> the. Um, hello, Bertolt. The, um, <laughs> but it was. Um, 
there was, uh, and, and I basically went, oh, great. Oh, you're coming to the club, you know. And, uh, oh, you were the first comp I ever saw years and years ago. <laughs> when I was 15 years old, and you must have been about 40 at least. <laughs> and I was basically saying, hello, old man. What are you doing back here? But that that was the start. What was that? That was 2000. 2002. Yeah, God, man. I think. Um, that yeah. bit where you came back, because you, you, you wrote a couple mm. of novels, you wrote uh-huh. Drop the Dead Donkey, there were yeah. a lot of different things you were yeah. doing. Yeah. What was, there's only I one... I remember seeing you when you first came back on the circuit. It was really cool. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. And, and it was, but it's interesting how few, the only one I mentioned briefly, um, uh, Hancock and Malarkey, and Malarkey and yeah. Hancock, and Nick Hancock is the only person who I think has effectively left stand-up. Yeah, which may, makes me wonder that maybe it was never here because everyone else has managed on two, three, four, five, maybe ten years. You know, Alexi did. Was it maybe twelve years? You Alexi can never managed. leave. But oh, no. that's the thing: is yeah. if it is, when you came back, what was your initial thoughts of 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 what you you know what you were going to be, and did you have a new sense of what you wanted to do? I had an intenser sense of doing political satirical stuff because one of the main reasons that triggered me back into it was the impending gulf war you know and i just uh, i just i found myself ranting bits in my local booth and i thought well i really <laughs> i ought to do this on a stage so i was committed to to doing that it was you know obviously the circuit had changed a lot by that stage it had got a lot more uh, mainstream and you know you didn't have the same kind of shared terms of reference but I suppose really I just wanted to um, yeah just get back up there and learn how to do it again which after that gap did I felt took me a while but um, yeah just to relearn how to do it and uh, and be able to throw in as much political stuff as I could in a way that people would you know I, I like to think of it as often like a time bomb, you know, that maybe goes off in their heads. Mm. <laughs> so who are your favourite at the moment for, for your new show? Now we're near the end, but mm. who, who are you uh, reading at the moment? Oh, I've just read uh, a German novel called Till by uh, uh, a writer called Daniel Kelman. It's just come out in translation, actually. I recommend it. And it takes Till Eulenspiegel, who is this folk law character from... Actually existed. He was a kind of prankster, juggler, travelling minstrel, tightrope walker uh, who lived in the 14th century. Um, but Kaelman puts him as a uh, into the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century. And um, it's a really kind of... Um, absorbing and exciting and kaleidoscopic survey of, uh, of a, a, a fool walking through... <laughs> through a war zone it's a lovely version of the um of the emperor's new clothes which is in the original stories which are from the like 15th century that were written down um where he becomes the court fool in the book to the king and queen of bohemia um and uh, and the queen particularly likes him because he um he gets these blank canvases and says i've done you some really good paintings uh, uh, your majesties um the great thing about these paintings is unless you're of noble birth and sophisticated breeding you'll only see an empty canvas and the queen loves the way that of course all the courtiers and nobles have to say oh it's, yes it's because they know that otherwise they might you know lose their position and so on. but it's it, it was a fascinating read and before that i read berlin alexander platz which is a 1929 modernist German novel, um, 
Which was that turned into a it series was, by uh, Rainer Werner Fassbinder? It was, well yeah. done, 1979, I think. Yeah. That's that's why Robin's on the team. <laughs> Robin's always going to be able to pull that, pull that. Pull out the miserable German new wave. My oh. God, I watched it. Sometimes you watch it, and, and I mean, they're remarkable, and the number of films that he made in such a short life. Yeah. But every, you know, every now and again you go, I wish I hadn't watched that. Life is sad, and humanity may well be wrong. You know, that, that, there's <laughs> such a fine balance, isn't it? Of... I've just uh, moved. I bought, um, in a real excited thing, the collected poetry of Brecht, and it's just been sitting there because the design was so beautiful. Mm. Just been sitting in my living room, and I moved it from on a bookshelf to on the kitchen, on the dining table. So what it's meant is every day I'm like, let's read four Brecht poems, and it's been great, but also a bit like, oh, great. Oh, I'm having fun though. Great. I'm doing. You, you'll have read him already, but I've never really got round to it. Uh, uh, the prose and poetry of John Clare. Oh, what wow. a bloody delight that is. The joy. Well, it really sad, is, isn't it? But so interesting as well. What a man, what a life. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Please read. Like, John Clare is... I, I, what, what really strikes me about John Clare is if I ever do go for a walk in nature, you'll see a bird that he has described and you're like, it really is like that. <laughs> yeah. He's such a good descriptive poet. The, the, sorry, I'm just going to crash sorry. in because I just because bringing up Brecht. There's one. Of, uh, there's a there's a lovely uh, poem that he did in the Svendeborg poems, which is when he ran off to. He was in Denmark in just 1941, I think he was before they got invaded, maybe 40. Anyway, anyway, and he wrote this this long poem, uh, anti-fascist poem. But, but but the essence of it is, and it's a not a literal translation, but. It's essentially every fascist tank has the same weak point, the mind of the driver. <laughs> and on that, we will end. Thank you very I much, Nick Revel. Point, Brilliant, man. thank you. <laughs> that was our conversation with Nick Revel and now a new remote conversation. Here is Robin and Ian Stone. Well, we, we will start talking about your book, and then we might talk about this as well. It's a lovely book, by the way. It's really... Uh, it's really you've, you've not... I know you've not written a book before. This is your first thing, isn't it? First book. And um, it was Rosie's idea. My partner, Rosie, said, why don't you write a book about the jam? And, and what, what happens in our relationship? She'll say something, you know, very, very, sort of, why, why don't you do this? And I think, oh, my God, this is like two years work now, isn't it? Because it's generally a very good idea. And she said to me, why don't you write a book about the jam? And um, I thought, you know what? Why don't I? Why don't I write a book, not about the jam, but about my relationship with them growing up and what it was like and about London in the 1970s. And, um, yeah, we managed to get crowdfunding for it through Unbound and I wrote it. And here it is. It's um, I mean, you start. I think one of the things that, that is, is very clear from the book is anyone who looks at the world we're living in now and says, looks back to their childhood and goes they were such lovely i mean your the book starts basically with you getting run over and two people being kicked in the head and separate incidents <laughs> and, and, yeah. and certainly a lot of the stuff you talk about in terms of you know some of the the uh, the anti-semitism and the racism that's going on i mean you know we, we go to a sham 69 gig which made me so happy that i've never been to i think i saw them at a festival once actually something like Guildfest. i think i've seen right Shams. right Certainly, it's 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 a it's a it's a it's a beautiful book with a lot of happiness in it. But at the same time, there's there's no rose tinting, really, is there? Well, it was it was the 1970s. It was it was differently violent. I mean, there weren't people getting stabbed left, right, and centre. But it was um, it felt dangerous. There was a lot of feral youths walking around, mods and rockers and skinheads and suede heads and all sorts. And you had to be careful. And add to that, I was in a Jewish school in Camden. 
quite a rough area and still quite a rough area, I think. And um, it was a little dangerous out there, I think. And interesting enough, Paul Weller, bless him, I got him to read the book. And that was one of the first things he said. I mean, he gave me a quote on the front. I really like this book. I'd forgotten how shit it was in the 70s, which is very funny. <laughs> very funny. But he said it was the violence. He remembers a lot of the violence. And I guess I grew up in northwest London in Halsden, which was quite a rough place. And there was a lot of low-level violence um, around. And, I mean, the Sham 69 gig was the most violent thing I've ever been to in my life. I've never seen anything like that. But... It was always, a, my, my childhood felt a little dangerous, if I'm honest with you, most of the time, living in inner city London and growing up. And also, like I say, with the Jewish thing, you were very much a target. So, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a slightly scary time. But the way I managed to divert myself was going to see the jam and going to football, really, although that was violent as well, <laughs> to be honest Interesting thing when you talk about, I mean, I even think just 30 years ago when we were both early days of us doing stand up. Yeah. And when you, there was a lot of places in London which are now, you know, it's okay if you go off the, the track, you'll, you'll still, for, but there were lots of places you'd get out, out of the tube station or, or the, the uh, overground and you'd go, right, where the hell's the Rose and Crown then? And you were just, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. I, I think if anything, it, it, it does feel, um, I know these are very strange times. But I don't think it has, as you said, that strange low-level violence, that strange not about being killed, but about someone just thinking, a group of people thinking, let's just kick that person in. Yeah. It feels as if that was more volatile then. Well, well it, was it was certainly, that was present. And, and it, when you start writing, you never really know where it's going to go. I knew it was going to be a sort of memoir about, you know, a sort of social history and, and an autobiography and about, you know, loving the jam and and how the music helped me get through it but when i thought back to those times yeah there seemed to be a lot of trouble around i was never i was never one for for getting involved particularly but sometimes you just happen to be around when it happened so i mean it's it's a that's what i love about the book is that you know a lot of it is on the way to the jam it's yeah. that beautiful kind of almost a shaggy dog thing it's you know <laughs> if, if ronnie corbett had worked for the melody maker and written a book about the jam i think you know that's maybe the book but it's got a beautiful way of it it never leaves the point of the book but it allows you to flesh out i mean first of all as you said that way that a certain band come along and they are yours. And it's not just about the song. It's not just about the music. I mean, like for me, I'm, I'm only slightly younger than you, a few years younger. And for me, it would have been the specials. Yeah. You know, the first time at 10 years old, I heard the specials. It opened up so many doors in terms of politics and about ideas and culture. And, you know, as, as a, a kid in the home counties, the specials yeah. was an education. And that's what it feels like with, with, with the jam. It was both one, it was a support system of ideas that were fermenting here, but it was also an education, wasn't it, for you? Well, first, first things first, I think Paul Weller was like a big brother to me and quite a lot of kids, really. I didn't have a big brother. I didn't, adults used to speak a language I didn't really understand. And then I remember hearing Paul Weller and the things he was singing about, the social politics police violence or whatever it was going on at the time, the politics of it, and thinking, oh, there's a guy who's only five or six years older than me making sense. And so, and it, listen, this wasn't, this wasn't just me. It was thousands of kids. I latched onto it very quickly. And um, I remember when he used to sing about modern world and he used to say, I don't give a damn about your review, right? That was one of the lines. 
and it was it was such an eye opener to me that someone who was so young just didn't care what you thought of him because I spent all my life caring what people thought of me and you know as a normal teenager but he was yeah he taught me a lot Paul Weller the songs taught me a lot I think there's a past there's a bit in the book when I talk about um if you're a kid and you grow up and you're a little bit confused about your sexuality in the 70s David Bowie would have been your thing right because he would have you'd have looked at him and gone oh well you know what the middle ground is okay I can do what I like it doesn't I don't have to define myself one way or the other with me I was I felt a little bit um I don't know it didn't feel like the world was offering me much and and then when Paul Weller came along I thought right I'm not alone here and and he opened my eyes to a lot of stuff including by the way tons of other music that I hadn't heard up to that point because I went, I used to go to his gigs and they used to play loads of soul music before the gigs Wilson Pickett and Sam and Dave stuff I'd never heard up to that point and it opens your eyes to all sorts of stuff uh yeah it was it, he was the one for me a friend of mine Simon had talked about the jam and I and then I heard them on John Peel's show which is where we got introduced to a lot of music right and um as soon as I heard it, I thought, yeah, these are the ones. These are the ones. And I never really lost that from that moment on. It's done. Well, did you find that hard? Because, uh, you know, you're, you're a great gag writer. And as you said, you don't very often you don't do the, the you know, so there are some people who do very long, you know, no, windy not, routines. I'm not but, that guy. You're not that, and that bit of actually sitting down and thinking, right, I'm 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 fifty now, and I'm I'm going to write three hundred and sixty pages. Mm. How hard did you find that concentration? You know what? Some days it was, some days it was great. I mean, you know this. Some days it was great. One day I had a, I I, I injured my, I got a frozen a frozen shoulder once, and I, I booked a, an appointment with a physiotherapist. And I got so into writing that afternoon, I completely forgot, which is not something I do. And I got a phone call from Harry, this guy. So where are you? And I went, oh, <laughs> I was lost in it. So when those days were great, but I didn't have that many days like that. A lot of the days it was a bit more of a slog, but, you know, you, you spew out 80,000 words. And I showed it to Rosie, who is, you know, my, well, everything really, an editor and all the rest of it. And she went, yeah, that's good. That's not so good. That bit should go there. What about this? And then we start again. And it's, um, but once you've got something down, it's something to work on, isn't it? Something to pick apart. Um, I, honestly, it, it was, I wouldn't say it's the hardest thing I've ever done, but it's, it's hard. It's not an easy thing to write a book, but now it's done. Um, it's, it's a thrill to have it. I just think, oh, I want to do another one. <laughs> Yeah, what? Who were my second favourite band? <laughs> the uh, um, the uh, yeah. well, you maybe you do a book about why you never loved Cham sixty nine, but you never know. Jimmy Percy will turn up then. Uh, I worked with him. I worked with him on a radio show, and I told him about that gig, and he said it was a disaster. The the, the book opens with a, the going to Sham sixty nine. Like I say, I've I've never seen so many Nazi skinheads in one place in my life. But as I say in the book, Jewish boys don't tend to go yeah. to the same. We don't move in the same circles really um yeah i am um, i'd like to do it again it, it it was it was in the main a fun thing to do really but it's a it's a very different experience from writing a joke doing it on stage and getting a big laugh i mean it's been three years in the making i'm i'm you know i've, I've done a gag three years ago and i'm going well what's your and, and, and you'll never hear the laugh 
you know, unless yeah. it turns out someone sat opposite you on the tube, you'll never. It's, it's so, oh. I, I found that with 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 the, the last book that I did, I, I forgot whether it was funny or not. It's that bit where you you get so caught up in editing it and you know pulling it. You know that bit where if you revisit a joke too many times, not on stage, but just like eventually it, it seems dead to you, doesn't it? And yeah. then you you suddenly get someone right to you, and and you go, oh. Oh, that chapter is funny. Good, because yeah. that, yeah. that all just becomes sentences, and that—that's a kind of. You're right. It's a very different undertaking. When than the, when when I got the book, when I got the book back, uh, the book arrived last week, and I and I actually sort of sat down and I read some of it, and there were still some things that make me laugh. But I mean, that's just me. Mike Wilmot, who's a fellow comedian, once said to me, "No one enjoys your act as much as you." <laughs> it was extremely funny moment for me, but. If if you're reading it and it and sometimes it does still feel like the first time and and there's a couple of jokes in there that I thought that's a good they're good jokes and I'm and I'm happy about that and I did always set out to write a funny book I mean it wasn't the, the forefront I wanted to tell the stories but I, I I can't really tell stories in an unfunny way it has to there has to be some humour in it even I don't know maybe the stuff about being bullied perhaps was quite heavy some of it but um, in the main I'd, I'd hope that people would enjoy and, and laugh quite a lot at the book. I'd hope it's, so. a, it's a difficult thing, is it? When you've been a stand-up for, for such a long period of time, that moment where you go, do you know what? This is just an interesting story. Maybe I shouldn't add a punchline. Maybe I shouldn't, you know, that there is, uh, I, I think, you know, it's an interesting thing. Did you ever see um, Hannah Gadsby's uh, show that the one that now, yes. I thought that had some very interesting stuff about the fact that when she revisited what had been a stand-up routine and then said, and here's the details that I didn't give. And it turns out that she ended on a punchline mm. and where the story actually ends is, is somewhere violent. <laughs> and, and, and that, yeah. that's an interesting bit, isn't it? Getting the balance, right. I don't know how you feel about psychologically as a human bit going some days, just I, I was talking to a therapist of course i was we're comedians why wouldn't we be talking to therapists and uh yeah and she said to me um uh if you're still making a joke about something it means you haven't come to terms with it but then i spoke to another therapist really uh, well no this is an interesting thing then she told me another side of it this this is uh, the, the, the two therapists there's philippa perry and josh cohen who's a who's, who's a fantastic uh therapist yeah. as well and 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 her thing was, it depends on whether the joke is evading the subject. So I told her about a joke that I said after my mum died. And she went, that's fine, because it takes it full on. It doesn't, it does, it's not a distraction from the reality. Right, right, right. And I think that's an interesting thing, that but, bit where you can still make a joke about it, but don't pretend it doesn't mean anything. And yeah, I don't know if you, uh, that's not, I mean, me and Rosie have this discussion where I'll say, you know, something funny. And she'll go, yeah, but you're not joking, are you? It's not a joke, <laughs> and I'll say, yeah, but it's I so it's it's a serious joke. I guess the point is the point you're making, and that's what I I didn't want anything frivolous really mm. in here. That's the point. I was telling a story about my life, and I wanted to be true to that, but still funny stuff, even amongst even amongst the 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 horror of it of some of the moments in there. I'd like to think it's still funny, but the main thing for me was just to um, it's not. It's not a therapy. This wasn't a therapy session right in this book. But it did help me come to terms with that period. It, it wasn't, you know, I, there was a lot of that time when I wasn't particularly happy, I guess. And it was nice to, to write it all down. Um, Alan Davis, who helped a lot with, he proofread it and helped out with the funding. Um, 
he said to me, do you know my favourite character? Your nose. Mm. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, because I write, uh, there's a bit in one chapter, isn't there, about um, about the amount of stick I used to get about my nose. And when you're 14, that is quite painful. And I'm 57 now. I'm sort of, I've, I'm, you know, I've grown into it, I guess. But um, that was quite a painful period uh, at the time. And I wanted to write about that truthfully and honestly. I did. Yeah, I no, I think, I think that comes across very Good. much. I Good. think it's it, 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 it never feels like you're being, you know, facile. It, it feels like a very genuine, you know, a genuine love story about you and a band <laughs> and and everything that goes on around that. And I mean, that was a, a, when you were, you know, getting the book to Paul Weller and that, that whole thing as well. It's, it's like, it reminds me of when Will Smith, lovely Will Smith, posh boy Will Smith, yep. you know, huge Marillion fan. And he became friends with fish. Mm. And there are these certain moments in the world <laughs> that we're in. And I'm sure it's probably happened with you in football as well. Yes. There's people where you, you're just having a drink with them. And then suddenly you have to remind yourself that 16 year old you will be going, who are bloody in the same. Yeah. You know, I was thinking that about very sad, of course, you know, um, the, the slapstick festival, one of the last events that I, I did there this year was with Tim Brooke Taylor. Yeah. And every time that I was with the goodies, yeah. I would go, I have to remember that 10-year-old me would be going, you're with the bloody goodies. Yes. There's yeah. Graham, Bill and Tim. Yeah, you just don't say it out loud. That's the only thing, right? But in the end, well, I, Matt Lucas, uh, who is a mutual friend of ours, got the book to Paul Weller. I said, I know he lives near him and I knew he knew him. So I said, can you get the book to Paul Weller? I'd love him to read it. Well, you can imagine the amount of time I spent on the card just to make sure it was the right card and saying the right thing, because you want to, you know, you want to approach people in the right way. You don't want to be too, too, um, you know, stalkery, if you like. Um, and he um, he phoned me up. He read the book and he phoned me up, which is one of the more surreal moments of my life. Saying, Ian, he phoned up. I said, yeah. He goes, Ian, it's Paul Weller. Right now, what I wanted to say was. I know I can <laughs> recognize your voice anywhere, but I just went, Oh, Hey Paul, how are you doing? And the first thing he said was, I really like this book. I'd forgotten how shit it was in the seventies. And I said, can I use that for a quote on the front cover? And he said, of course you can. And then we had a 45 minute chat. And then I ended up having dinner with him one night. Um, and it, uh, you know what? I'm old enough now that I don't get too overawed by this stuff, but it is a little bit surreal. Of course it is. And I think, I think it's good that it's a little bit surreal. I think if these things wear off, I think that's when it's a problem. I think we should still be excited by the fact I'm not, I'm not dribbling when I'm talking to him. I'm talking to him like a normal person. And I guess the other thing to say about that is in the same way that Tim Brooke Taylor and the goodies would respect you as a comedian and writer and broadcaster and all the rest of it. Paul was talking to me as a writer. You know, I'm, I've written a book that he really likes. So it's a slightly more even relationship than me just going up to him and going, oh, I love your stuff, Paul. And he goes, oh, thanks very much. Because there's not much to say, is there, really? So there is, but nice. I, I think you're right. Getting that balance, but what I, I think you should never get blasé. No. You know, I, I find with things like astronauts, when I do a show with astronauts, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and sometimes yeah. I'm there going, this is someone who stood on the moon. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm fawning over them. I'm just chatting to them. Yeah. But don't let that little bit in the back of your mind go. He's been on the bloody moon. Don't 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 quieten that. No. Don't just you know we're all, I, and I think there is a way of doing that, which is as you said, yeah, it's it, it's not to go crazy, but it's just to go. Do you know what? Isn't this nice? Isn't it yeah. nice to think that you found a point where you've written a book and you've met someone who, for your teenage years in particular, they got you through that. 
they, yeah. they, they were the person that guided you through. And to sit down and have dinner with them, I think, is a very beautiful thing to happen. But that's that's how things turn out sometimes. I'm I'm just glad that I I've got some talent that can enable that to happen once in a while. I just think you'd, if he'd been in at your first gig, you wouldn't have done stand up, would you? You'd say, <laughs> oh, by the way, Paul Weller's in the front row. That's it. That's it. over and done with. No, no more stand up then. Never going on again. But I do write the last chapter of the book is trying to pull the threads together and say, you know, the book's called to be someone, and I wanted to sort of acknowledge how much of an influence he was and 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 that attitude that he had helped me when I started stand up i mean it genuinely did because i thought you know i can i can express myself in the way that he he did i mean the amazing thing about paul weller is that he did it when he was 18 19 i wasn't quite ready for it then i'll be honest with you but that that was part of the reason that we connected with him you know i was only 5 years i'm i think i'm 4 or 5 years younger than him but i used to look up to him and and those early days of the jam, that energy, I've never had anything like that. I've never felt it. Have you? What's the nearest, you know, we've bumped into each other at music festivals every now and again. Have you seen anyone in the last few years where, I know it's never going to be the same, it's different, as you said, different age, different everything about the time, but have you had those certain moments ago and, as I've, I've like you know when i watched idols for the first time at a festival and <laughs> and uh, if they this the certain band you see them uh and go yeah this has still got uh something to it well i mean glastonbury is really the one isn't it do you know what honestly i saw lizzo last year at glastonbury one of the most joyous things live music has always moved me in a way that nothing else I mean, football does it, I guess, as well. But live music and seeing Lizzo in that field on that Sunday Sunday afternoon, whenever it was, and the joy, the joy there of all these people, I'd never, it really felt great. And yeah, of course, I saw Elbow one year as the sun's going down on the pyramid stage. That's pretty cool. Beyonce was amazing the year I saw her. I mean, I don't even like R&B that much, but when you see someone who's just a, an amazing artist do their thing. You've got to acknowledge, oh yeah, this is just class. So yeah, of course, of course, regularly. I did. I never really liked the idols. And then I saw <laughs> we were watching um, Glastonbury highlights and they played Danny Delco. And great. well, yes, I agree. My, my family, we were sitting there looking, they were looking a little bit scared to be honest with you, but I really like it. So if they play, I wouldn't mind going to see them. Yeah. When it happens with live music, that is something, isn't it? And um, I wanted to try and capture that a little bit and how it felt to me at the time. Well, I think you did. This is uh, To Be Someone is uh, 25th of June. Yes. Uh, it's it's yeah. it's available and it's a really you know it doesn't it doesn't matter whether you're into the jam or not if you're into music if you enjoy it it, it is a, it's it's a really good memoir of so many different things and i think Thanks, it, it should be interesting to to everyone any anyone who's has had that moment with any band you will find yourself just going oh yeah I remember that gig. Different band, different year, different location. It doesn't matter. Um, thanks very much, Ian. And uh, hopefully one day we'll be back on the, whatever circuit exists in our dystopian world. <laughs> thanks, Robin. Thank you very much for listening. Remember, you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles to support the podcast and get lots of extras and extended episodes and all that sort of stuff. Follow us on Twitter at Cosmic Shambles. Like, rate, subscribe, all that jazz. Back next week with a brand new episode. Take care, stay safe. Bye-bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.
Josie Robbins Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. <laughs>